First one again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 21, and the second will be from Matthew 5, verse 9. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling himself, reconciling the world to himself, not recounting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reading from Matthew 5 verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning everybody. Thanks, Nicole, for that reading, and uh, thanks to Linda. I don't think he's with us. I think he's with the teens uh, for praying a little bit earlier on. Just some uh, housekeeping before I say a few other things, Uh, and it's really stating the obvious. In light of this fourth wave, can I appeal to all of us just to be really careful and take extra care uh, when we come to church, when we gather? We want to keep gathering, but we do have to love our neighbor. And so um, it's really important that we take special care through this fourth wave. I think what happens, what's happened is, and it's only natural as the, as the numbers went down, we all relaxed and we all got lax. And that's, I think that's, that's the only way it can be. Um, you can't be on high alert for two years. Your, your nervous system can't take it. Uh, so we all relaxed and then we struggled to make the adjustment when the numbers really accelerated. Uh, so we want to gather and I want to encourage you to Feel free to gather, but then we do really have to take extra special precaution and look after each other, pre-register, get your early social distance, masks, you know the drill. Um, so please, let's, let's take special care. And, and on that, can I say, please, it's really important with things in so much flux. Uh, we're getting better at this, but we still need your help. Uh, the regulations may change, and then we need to notify you. So if you don't receive our weekly newsletter, it's so important that you do. Uh, you can, as Rafa was mentioning earlier, you can just go onto the newcomer's QR code. That'll direct you to a Google form, and then you opt into the newsletter. So please do opt into the newsletter. If, uh, if you're not uh, tech savvy, if you're a technophobe, you can just contact the, the church office, and Helen will help you register for that newsletter but it's really important that we can communicate with you midweek so please make sure that you signed up for that then obviously i want to um i reserve right of reply to everything that reg and mbali said uh i can't really add anything to what nicholas said he said it so well for those of you who don't know nick kialanga lingua is the nick that reg mentioned um as one of the guys that that was sent out and it's so wonderful and heartwarming to see his face to hear his voice and to hear, you could hear the emotion. Couldn't you see the emotion as he speaks about uh, Reg and Mbali and how he's ministered into their lives? He didn't mention that, but that, that is the case. And uh, what a joy it is for him now to see them taking on this mantle of leadership. And it's the same for all of us. Um, so 
it's very mixed feelings on a day like today. On, on the one hand, there is a deep sense of loss. Uh, we are losing one of our own. Uh, this family is one of our own. Uh, it's, it's right that we feel some loss. Um, they have grown up in our midst. They have uh, grown in their faith in our, in, in our midst. And they have faithfully served us and ministered to us. And, um, and so we do feel a deep sense of loss. But can I say, and this just really echoes what Reggie was saying and what Nick was saying earlier, it's the right kind of loss. So if we are a redeemed family of servants on mission, on mission, this is precisely the deep kind of sacrifice. And it is a deep sacrifice for us. It's not easy, it's painful, but it's the kind of deep sacrifice you must be willing to make and not begrudgingly, but you actually have to pursue this kind of sacrifice. You have to promote it, and you have to throw yourself behind it. And that's what we as a church family are trying to do, and it's what we will continue to try and do, is get behind these guys and do everything we can to be of support to them in their crucial, crucial work uh, at Velta Freedom Park. So I think the best way to end is for me to pray for them. And can I ask you just to stand? Um, it's just a, a, an opportunity to stretch your legs. Let's just stand. And I'll pray for Reg and for Mbali and for our time together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so very much for Reggie, for Mbali, for the three boys. Father, what a blessing they've been to us. We praise you for your work in their lives, for making them who they are, and for the way that you've moved them to, to serve us, to love us, to care for us in so many ways, to be part of us. Father, we pray that that same spirit who, who um, has moved them in this way will continue to be with them. Uh, spirit of God, we ask that you, you help them and lead them and guide them. And, and that they might have a wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary impact for Christ in Valterfreden Park. That they might be a light in that neighborhood. That you might bless them and bless their labors and help them through all... As Nick said, through all the highs and lows, Lord Jesus, will you sustain them? Will you be at the very center of everything they are and everything that they do? And so we send them out today, Lord, with, with mixed feelings, sad because they're going, but rejoicing because they're going to do something great. And please, Lord, will you bless them and keep them? And Father, as we, as we come to your word now, as always, we come desperately needing your grace. We come only in your grace to receive what you have to give to us, to receive this blessing of this blessing reserved for peacemakers, for sons and daughters of God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Please take your seats. In 1969, some of you were there, John Lennon wrote the massive pop anthem, Give Peace a Chance. A year later, he had a nasty fight with his band and the Beatles broke up. Then in the decade after he wrote the anthem, he was estranged from just about everyone close to him. All we are saying is give peace a chance. There's a tragic irony that you can't miss there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's probably the least controversial, but the most misunderstood of all of the Beatitudes. It's the least controversial because everybody wants peace. Who doesn't want peace? If we are unanimous, if we all want peace, 
Why don't we have it? And we don't have it. By one estimate, one historical estimate, over the last 4,000 years of human history, there have only been 300 years without open warfare. Let's focus on the last century, simply because that's the most familiar to us. World War I finished in 1918. It claimed 30 million lives. It was the war to end all wars. It ended all wars for about 20 years. And then in the Second World War, 90 million people lost their lives. 90 million people. At the height of the Cold War, which followed immediately on after the Second World War, the nuclear powers stockpiled the equivalent of 320 billion billion tons of highly explosive material. If that tonnage had been divvied up amongst the world's population of that day, it would have meant that every single man, woman, and child would need to find a space in the garage to store over a hundred tons of explosive material. Every man, woman, and child. A hundred tons each. Who remembers April 1994? Of course we remember it. We remember it fondly. What do we remember it for? Our first democratic elections. A great monument to human hopes for peace. The problem is, that same month, will also be remembered for the start of the Rwandan genocide. I've been to the genocide memorial in Kigali twice. It really isn't for the faint-hearted. You need to brace yourself if you ever go. It's a haunting experience. They have a room called the children's room. It's a series of walls covered, whole walls covered in photo collage. And each little photograph has a biography underneath so here's a photo, a, little, a photo of Freddie, and here's Freddie's biography. Freddie is three years old. Freddie loved his tricycle. Freddie has an infectious laugh. Cause of death, hacked with a machete. 20th of May, 1994. We, who all want peace, who will glibly sing along, all we are saying is give peace a chance. We have to face up to that. We have to look human evil straight in the eyes. Why? Because it shows us what we're up against. And it makes a mockery of any shallow optimism for human peace. Peace on earth. As we, like John Lennon, can testify... It is one thing to sing it. It's another thing to live it. And it's been this way since the beginning. It was this way in Jesus' time. In the 400 years before he was born, there were five bloody battles for Jerusalem. In the next few decades after he died, in the decades that followed after he died, there was a sixth battle for the city. In that battle, more than a million Jews died. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day were not hoping and praying for peace. They were hoping to join their Messiah in a war of liberation to conquer and kill their Gentile oppressors. And so blessed are the peacemakers would have been an absolute scandal to their ears. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
It should be a scandal to our ears as well. And maybe it will be when we try and answer a few simple questions. So here are our simple questions. What is peacemaking? What blessing is there in making peace? Who makes the peace? How do we make peace? Where do we make peace? What is peacemaking? What blessing is there in making peace? Who makes the peace? How do we make it? Where do we make it? What is peacemaking? If you want to know what peacemaking is, you have to know what peace is. The peace in this beatitude, the peace that rolls off Jesus' lips, is probably not what we think it is. We might think of the armistice. A ceasefire with the headline, Peace at Last. Or, I'm no longer beating my wife. We are at peace. That's not biblical peace. That falls woefully short. Biblical peace is the idea of shalom. It's the idea of everything in harmony, everything rightly relating to everything else. It's the idea of abundance and prosperity. Maybe the best way of describing it is as flourishing. The idea of flourishing. The word flourishing. We had a friend at Bible college called James. Whenever you greeted James with a simple house of James, he would respond, I'm flourishing. I'm flourishing. It was actually quite annoying. (laughs) The rest of us were dying under the weight of the workload. James was always flourishing, skipping around flourishing. I'm not sure he had biblical shalom in mind, but knowing James, he probably did. That's what peace is. That's what biblical peace is. Peace means shalom. Shalom has in mind the idea of flourishing, human flourishing. Now, it should be obvious, given all of that, that to be a peacemaker means more than just avoiding conflict. Peacemaker is not shorthand for a non-confrontational person. It's so much more than that. It's an active role. It's not just putting out the fire. It's growing a garden from the ashes. It's active and it's proactive. It doesn't wait for conflict to start before it starts to pursue, to work hard for harmony, for prosperity, for flourishing. Abraham Lincoln captures the essence of peace and peacemaking like this. Die when I may. I would like it to be said of me that I always pulled up a weed and planted a flower where I thought a flower would grow. Peacemaking is pulling up weeds, but it's also planting flowers. What is the blessing in making this kind of peace? The blessing is straight there in our verse. You will be called sons of God. And that called there is not just labeled. That called is the idea of ownership. On the last day when Jesus returns, his disciples, the peacemakers, will be revealed and publicly proclaimed, publicly acknowledged, owned as children of God. Of course, disciples of Jesus are that already. They are children of God by adoption, by spiritual union with their elder brother, who is the son of God by nature. 
We are children of God by grace. He's the Son of God by nature. And as always, as, with, as has been the case with every single beatitude, there's a now and a not yet. We know that blessing now by faith. We will know it then, face to face, in its fullness. Why will making peace mean that we will be revealed as children of God? What's the connection between the two? Between our status as adopted sons and daughters of the Father and peacemaking. What's the connection? The connection is in bearing the family likeness. As we make peace, we bear the family likeness. God is the great peacemaker. The scriptures call him the God of peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. He brought the gospel of peace. He promised to leave us his peace. At his birth, the heavenly host sang a blessing of peace. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit, the bond of peace, descended on him like a dove, that great symbol of peace. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the great peacemaker. The blessing for peacemakers is the blessing of being a child of God and joining our father in the family business. One day our father will embrace us and that embrace will publicly declare what we've known all along by faith. We are his children. That blessing, as we said before, reaches back into the here and now. That future blessing reaches back into the here and now. If he is for us, who can be against us? As we struggle to make peace now, we do so as sons and daughters of the great peacemaker. There is such enormous comfort, security, joy in knowing the peacemaker's loving presence as we face this world that is gripped by conflict. And in the end, We will be vindicated. Peace will win. Peace will reign. We will reign and flourish with our God in peace. There is no higher blessing than that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Who makes this peace? We've already said it, the great peacemaker. How does he make the peace? Maybe it's better to start with what peace does he make? This is where the language of our verse gives us a clue. Peacemakers will be called literally sons of God. Who else was called a son of God in the scriptures? If you're answering Jesus, yes, you are right. The answer is always Jesus. We'll get there. But before him, there was Israel. And before Israel, there was Adam. Luke's gospel explicitly calls Adam the son of God. And Luke isn't making that up. He's drawing it straight out of the Old Testament. Why? Why is he called the son of God? Well, let's bear in mind, Adam was supposed to be a peacemaker. He was supposed to take the shalom of the garden and extend it out into the world. That was his job. That was his mandate, to be a peacemaker. Problem is, he felt he could achieve shalom 
without God. And in that moment, peace was lost. Instead of walking in the cool of the garden with his God, access to his God was blocked by the flaming sword. Great symbol of conflict. Peace with God was traded for hostility. And peace with man, with his fellow man, followed soon afterwards. The son of God rejected his father. The son of Adam killed his brother. We have been rejecting God and killing each other ever since. In thought, in word, in deed. So the first son of God failed. The second son of God, Israel, failed. He too wanted shalom without God. But there was one more son, the last son, the true son, a new Adam, a faithful Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20 puts it like this, God was pleased through Jesus Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. God makes peace by the blood of the cross. We've heard it so many times that the outrageous strangeness of that statement is lost on us. God makes peace by the blood of the cross. The cross was a symbol of the cruelest violence and oppression. How could that possibly be about peace? How did the blood of the cross win peace? What we have is Jesus reversing Adam. Adam wanted shalom without God. Jesus wanted God and knew that shalom would follow. Adam walked away from his father. Jesus walked towards his father. To get to him, he had to pass through the flashing sword. So that humanity could enter into the loving presence of God again. He had to become what we are. God's enemies. So that we can become what he is. God's beloved children. He had to pass through violence and death so that humanity could have peace again. He had to rise again as a new creation in order to take his seat on the throne of the Son of God. And from there he reigns as the Prince of Peace and he ushers in a new age of flourishing, an unbreakable shalom for a new humanity. God has reconciled all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. He is the great peacemaker. Apart from the peace that he has made, there is no real peace. John Lennon is testimony to that. We, all too often, are testimony to that. You can be the greatest activist for peace in public. But if you are at war in your own home, what difference does it make? If I'm putting out a fire in the felt, but lighting one in my own living room, what difference does it make? War is in our hearts. Until we have peace there, peace with God, there's no hope for any real lasting peace. 
We'll be lighting fires faster than we can put them out. God makes peace. Without Him, there is no real peace. There may be the occasional ceasefire, but that is not peace. Peacemakers are disciples of Jesus Christ. Not because Christians are somehow more peace-loving or better at conflict resolution than other people know. It's because it's only if you have peace with God that you can pass that peace, His peace, true lasting peace, peace from the inside out, you can pass it on to others by sharing the gospel of peace. It's only if God has made peace with you that you can make His kind of peace with others. And that's why this verse is not an ethical instruction. It's not. It's a blessing from God. But it's a blessing from God that changes who we are and what we do. It's a blessing from God that makes us into peacemakers. So how do we live that out? How do we actually live as peacemakers? How do we make peace? And here we want to get really practical. But before we can do that, I have to say, I have to give you the disclaimer. I am presupposing that you are a disciple, that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is a dangerous assumption. It's a very dangerous assumption. I am presupposing that you enjoy the unique blessings of discipleship. I'm presupposing in you a poverty of spirit that knows that it has nothing to give to God. I'm presupposing that you mourn your sin and that in meekness you seek the good of others and you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only God can give. And I have to say this because the last thing I want to do is to give you the impression that peacemaking is a technique or a formula. It's neither. It's a way of being who God has made you. It's about who God is, what He's done, and how that changes who you are. So please, please don't leave, as we get practical, don't leave any of that behind. What I'm about to say may be practical, but it's the practical outworking of God's grace in your life. Okay, so there's the warning. Some principles, some practical principles for peacemaking. First principle. Make peace, not war. That sounds stupidly obvious. But too many of us, or perhaps rather too often, we deny the work of God in our lives. We deny our identity in Christ. We live as warmongers, not peacemakers. The Proverbs, that um, great compendium, compendium of, of Old Testament wisdom, the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, uh, the writer speaks of a troublemaker. This is the person who is constantly surrounded by conflict. They're the kind of person who will never overlook a slight or a snub. They will always complain, always raise the issue. In a conflict, they'll never present the other side of the argument fairly. It's always a straw man. They will never agree to disagree. 
They will never distinguish between issues of first importance and other issues. They will raise all of their hobby horses and their grievances to the level of first importance. Everything becomes a gospel issue. They deal in half-truths or innuendos that suit their cause. They are manipulative. Now let's get personal. If you take an honest look at your life, and you are always involved in conflict, there's only one of two possibilities. First possibility, everyone else you know is a troublemaker. Or, could it be, is it perhaps possible, you are the troublemaker? If that is you, then the first step to peacemaking is to repent. Take your troublemaking tendencies to the Lord Jesus. It's not going to be the first time he's encountered them. Take them to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to help you by his spirit to become who you truly are in him. A peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Second principle follows the first. If you want to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker, get off the internet. I can't plead with you strongly enough. Get off the internet. The quickest way to become a troublemaker is to spend your life online. It's the quickest way and the most effective that I know of. If you feel like there's more conflict around in the last couple of decades, and especially in the last couple of years, you're not imagining it. If you feel yourself entangled in that conflict and your own anger levels rising, you're not imagining it. Most social scientists say that the mass migration online and especially onto social media has a lot to do with all of that. Many of us would have seen the documentary The Social Dilemma, so you have some idea of how this works. A documentary is one thing, but peer-reviewed research by professional social scientists is saying the same thing. This is how it works. Social media is designed to give you what you want, and it's very good at doing it. So how does it do it? It puts us into groups. Then it entrenches those groups, and then it builds walls around those groups. So you, you have a moderate opinion on a, on a contentious issue. You have a leaning and inclination, but you're open to persuasion, and you're just trying to understand. And so you go online, and you express that leaning or that inclination or that opinion, that mild opinion online. It might be by liking a particular post or clicking a particular link or running a particular search. Immediately, the algorithms start to feed you more and more content affirming your underlying assumption. They will suggest friendships with others who share those assumptions. They will isolate you from those who don't. And so your life online, to use the jargon, will become nothing more than a positive feedback loop in an echo chamber. The more you show interest in a certain view, the more affirmation you get from the system. The more affirmation you get from the system, the more convinced you will become in your view. The more convinced you become, the more passionate you become. The more passionate you become, the more interest you show. The more interest you show, the more affirmation you get, and so on, and so on, and so on. That's the positive feedback loop. Not positive because it's good, by the way. Positive because it pushes you in the same direction. 
And because the system is designed to put you in a group with friends, you will only ever engage with those who are running on the same loop. That's the echo chamber, sometimes called the filter bubble. Now there may be lots and lots, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people with you in the chamber, but everybody's saying the same thing. And so the only voice you ever hear is your own. What happens inside the chamber is that you start to grow suspicious of those who are not inside the chamber, those on the outside of the walls. And very soon, you don't see them as someone who just has a different perspective, a different way of seeing things. Very soon they are stupid. And soon after that, they are evil. And the system doesn't just allow or facilitate this kind of growing contempt. It actually rewards it. It rewards contempt. The evidence shows that the posts that get the most traction on social media are those that attack the outgroup. So, in other words, anybody who's outside the walls, right? If you want to go viral, attack someone on the outside. Attack them, whoever they might be. Here's the staggering thing. The algorithm designers could change this. They could change it very easily with a few simple adjustments, but they don't because it pays. And the experts have a name for this whole process. It's called ideological siloing. It's all in the name. If you have a moderate opinion, if you are exploring the possibilities, you're open to reason, you want to be informed, the quickest way to become a hardened zealot who is suspicious of everyone, hates the other side, demonizes anyone with a contrary view is to spend your life online. Quickest way, most effective. If you are a peacemaker, the quickest way to become a troublemaker, spend your life online. You say to me, that's fine. It's a great warning for the Sunday school. Uh, you know, I'm not naive. I'm a mature adult. I can handle myself. In other words, the research applies to everyone else, right? Digital marketers have a slogan. It's a kind of inside joke. They say, if you are online and you look around and you don't know what the product is, you are the product. Ask yourself this. Ask yourself this honestly. Is there anything I've become really passionate about? So passionate I'm willing to fight for it and it's very clear to me who the enemy are. Then ask yourself, what role did online platforms play in my journey to that passionate conviction? My friends, the internet is not a neutral space. It is going to tell you what your itching ears want to hear. If you want to be a peacemaker, spend time with real people, flesh and blood. Especially, especially those who are not like you, who don't share your views on everything. Spend some time with them. Listen to them, really listen to them, not with rebuttal in mind, because we're good at that, aren't we? When you hear this guy out, and then I'm going to slam him with the ten reasons why he's wrong. So that's all, we, all we're thinking of, is the ten reasons why he's wrong. Listen with a view to understanding. Isn't that the call of the gospel? 
to love our enemies and surely to love them, at least to make a start in loving them, is to understand them. I'm not saying love means affirm everything they say as true. I'm saying love begins by taking the time to understand a human being. Understand where they're coming from. Walk a mile in their shoes. That's what love is, right? If you want to be a peacemaker, don't be a troublemaker. That means get off the internet. There's a wonderful bonus. If you get off the internet, you're probably going to find you yourself enjoy a lot more peace. Third principle is to pray for peace. Making peace often requires the wisdom of Solomon. It requires weighing an overwhelming amount of factual evidence. It requires even more because impartiality is extremely difficult. We all have our own biases and prejudices. And if you're going to be a peacemaker, you're called to be impartial. That's very, very hard. Peacemaking requires more still because the warring parties are not the only ones in the room. Remember, our battle is never, never, never against flesh and blood. The battle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6 verse 12. Now given all of that, clearly peacemaking is beyond us. Clearly there isn't a single one of us who's up to the task. And that's precisely where we must start and it's where we must stay. We must start and we must stay on our knees. We have to plead to the perfect peacemaker. The one who sees everything, including the hearts of men and women, including our own hearts. We have to plead to the one who is perfectly impartial and loving and fair. And that's why, as I said it before, peacemaking is not a technique or a formula. It's an act of submission to the great peacemaker. Fourth principle, fight for peace. Can't miss the paradox. Fight for peace. Peacemaking mustn't be confused with appeasement or pacifism. Because it's more than just avoiding conflict. We don't just want the fight to be over. We want a flourishing relationship on the other side. And that means sometimes you will have to enter into a war zone for the sake of peace. It means sometimes the road to flourishing passes through the valley of conflict. It's actually the pattern that God has given us in his son. The path, path to the ultimate peace that Jesus won was through the opposition, through the hatred, through the conflict, the violence, the conquest of the cross. The Christ was no appeaser. He only ever surrendered to one person. He only ever surrendered to the will of his Father. In fact, it was he who said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but the sword. Now, what does that mean? It means he didn't come to bring a superficial peace. He didn't come to preach peace, peace, where there is no peace. He was pursuing a deep, real, lasting peace. And so he was willing to risk conflict for the sake of that peace. We see it all the way through his ministry. That kind of peacemaking 
is what we're called to participate in. And you say to me, come on. What are you talking about? You've just been telling us not to be troublemakers. Now you're telling us we must fight for peace. The difference between a troublemaker and someone who fights for peace is this. Whose interests are you serving? A troublemaker is always protecting and advancing his own interests, his own reputation. A peacemaker seeks the interests of others. A peacemaker pursues flourishing for everyone, including, we might even say, especially his enemies. Sometimes we have to risk entering into conflict for the sake of the peace that lives on the other side. I once heard someone involved in peacemaking efforts in the Middle East, uh, that great center of conflict. I once heard him describe himself as a bastard for peace. Now, we wouldn't put it that way, but we must share something of that same zeal because peace does not come easy. You have to be willing to suffer for it. You have to be meek. You can't be, you can't be too sensitive about your own feelings. You can't be sensitive at all about your own feelings, your own interests, your own reputation. You have to be willing to suffer for peace. In other words, you have to be like Jesus. This is no ordinary calling. And therefore, final principle, know your limits. Jesus went to the cross for peace. That means we have to be zealous for peace. At the same time, we also need to know that ultimately, ultimate peace does not depend on us. It does not depend on us. Because we are so prone to war as human beings, because we face such a powerful spiritual enemy who hates peace. Our peacemaking efforts will often fail. And if we are not resting in the one who never fails, that is going to be a source of great defeat and discouragement for us. We need to be zealous for peace. And so we must be resting in the peacemaker himself. The two have to hold together. So there are practical principles. Repent of troublemaking. Get off the internet. Pray for peace. Fight for peace. And as you do all of that, know your limits. The last question we want to answer very briefly is where? Where should we be doing all of this? Where do we make peace? And of course the answer for disciples of Jesus Christ is everywhere. Everywhere. Because peacemaker is what you are, before it's what you do, wherever you are, peace should be a work in progress. Disciples of Jesus have always been active in international peace efforts and national peace efforts, but not many of us play in those circles. We must be making peace in our circles, from the boardroom to the bedroom, from the sports field to the lecture hall, from the Residents Association to the Running Club. Wherever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself, that place should be more peaceful because you are there. 
that place should be closer to flourishing because you are there and you are a disciple of the great peacemaker. We need to be peacemakers in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and wherever it is we find ourselves in wider society. We need to be making all kinds of peace, working for all kinds of flourishing. But, and there is a but, but there's a priority. In all our peacemaking efforts, there's a very clear priority. Of all the peacemaking we do and we must do, the peace we should be most concerned about is peace between God and man. Again, there's a clue in our text. That word peacemaker, it only appears this once in the New Testament. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. But it's all over the place in ancient Greek literature. It had a very particular meaning in those writings. In those writings, it took on the meaning of an ambassador. It had a technical meaning. It meant ambassador. The word was peacemaking, peacemaker, but it meant Ambassador. Now listen to this. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's peacemakers. As though God were making his appeal through us. How do we make peace? As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. As peacemakers we are first and foremost Christ's ambassadors. He makes his appeals to his enemies through us. Be reconciled to God. And you heard from the passage I've just read, God has done everything to make peace. It's all done. You just have to receive it. He's done everything. The reparations are paid. It's done. Be reconciled to God. That is our first and most important act of peacemaking. Why? Well, because without it, there is no real hope of any true and lasting peace. All our other efforts will amount to nothing. And those around us will never know the blessing of peace with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for making peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ by his blood shed on the cross. Because of that blood, we know the blessing it is to have peace with God and to be your peacemakers. What an extraordinary blessing it is, Father. One day we're going to be revealed to all the world as your sons and daughters. And until that blessed day, help us to be who we are. Help us to be active in the family business. And to live out the peace that you have made. Everywhere. And with everyone. It is only by the Prince of Peace that we pray these prayers. Amen.